Scripture reading this morning will be in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 1. We'll be reading the first nine verses. Let's all stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Father and our God, we ask now for your blessing over this time together in your word. Pray that each one of us uh, would be instructed as we begin this study of 1 Corinthians, this letter of the Apostle Paul to this church. Pray that each of us would uh, learn and grow during this time and this morning as we study some of these great, important doctrinal truths uh, found in this passage of Scripture. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me begin by just forewarning you that today has not been my day. Uh, first of all, I got four hours of sleep last night, which is never a good start to a day. Uh, and then my water heater decided to start leaking all over the basement uh, my printer stopped working, so about half of my pages this morning have a gap. You know how it kind of gets a stream right through the center of it? So all that to say, this could be a very fun sermon as I am sleep-deprived trying to read what is written in part of my pages here. Uh, so bear with me this morning as we, uh, as we try to make it through. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm excited about this because really for years I've been looking forward to teaching through Paul's letters. And that's the first thing that you need to understand about 1 Corinthians. It is a letter. Okay? It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, and so keep that in your mind as we go throughout this study that we are reading someone else's mail. Aside from the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation, kind of, uh, all of the rest of the books of the New Testament are letters written to individual churches. Now, these letters are very helpful to us because they have both doctrinal teaching and practical guidance for how to live as Christians. These letters are written to churches just like our church, to Christians just like we are here today. Now, these letters are also difficult at times because, again, they're letters. And so we're reading a correspondence between two people. There's preloaded assumptions. There's background knowledge. It's sort of like listening to half of a phone conversation. I don't know if you've ever been in that a situation where somebody that you know maybe is on the phone with someone else and you kind of hear only their side of the conversation and you can sort of piece together sometimes what they're talking about, uh, but you're going to miss bits and pieces along the way. And so that's sort of what's going on here. There's a relationship between Paul and this church, aspects of which we are not privy to. Uh, if I were going to write a letter to Catherine, for example, and some random person picked it up and read it, yeah, you'd probably understand a lot of it. Uh, but there might be references to people that we both know that you wouldn't know, references to things, situations that have taken place uh, that you might not be immediately aware of. And so there's going to be times as we work our way through this letter that we have to sort of try and figure out the other side of the conversation. Uh, what is it that led to Paul saying what he's saying? What's the situation? Uh, what is he talking about here? And we'll do the best we can when we get to those places. And so with that, we're just going to jump right in here to the first verse of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, we remember Paul from our time in Acts last year, but it's been a little while, so I think it's worth reminding ourselves a little bit of who this man was. We're introduced to Paul early in Acts as a young Jewish man. He was zealous for Judaism and he opposed Christianity. But perhaps that's putting it a little bit too mildly. Paul was the primary persecutor of the early church. We're told in Acts that he was wreaking havoc on the church. He was so angered 
by this claim that Jesus was the Messiah, that he would travel around and arrest any Christians he could find, both men and women. He would bring them bound in chains to Jerusalem to be tried and in many cases put to death. This was who Paul was. Then miraculously, Paul was saved. On the Damascus road, Christ appeared to him in a vision and called him to preach the very gospel that he had so violently opposed. And so Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to a preacher. After a few years of preaching, God was sent by, uh, Paul was sent by God along with Barnabas to go plant churches uh, to places where the gospel had not yet reached. Remember, thus far in Acts, it had kind of been contained mostly to Israel, and now it was beginning to branch out into the neighboring countries. And so Paul sailed out from Antioch, and he traveled uh, throughout what is modern-day Turkey and Greece, spreading the gospel of Jesus to anyone who would listen and starting churches all along the way. There's one more thing you need to know about Paul, and that's what he brings up in the very first verse there, 1 Corinthians. He says, Paul, an apostle. Uh, Paul wasn't merely a Christian or a preacher or a church planter. He was an apostle of the early church. Now, the term apostle means sent one, and it's used in a few different ways in the New Testament. We're all apostles in a sense. We represent Christ. Uh, he has sent us into the world with his message of salvation. But usually the term apostle refers to one of the 12 or 13 men who were specifically chosen by Christ to represent him in a unique capacity. They were essentially his deputies. They were given authority to speak for Christ. Uh, they carried the authority of Christ over his church in the first century. Look at what's written over in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, speaking of his ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So these apostles were chosen by Christ to basically carry on his work after he ascended to heaven. And Paul was one such apostle. Back to our text, you notice in 1 Corinthians 1.1 that Paul says he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is emphasizing to these Corinthians, he didn't just decide one day that he wanted to be an apostle. He wasn't even just appointed to the position by the church or by the other apostles. No, Paul was chosen by the will of God. He was called by God to be an apostle. Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road and commissioned him as his official representative. So you notice also in verse 1 there, there's another name mentioned. You don't just have Paul here. You have Sosthenes, our brother Sosthenes. Now this is really cool. Uh, Paul mentions that Sosthenes is with him because the Corinthians would have known Sosthenes. Uh, we're not going to go back over the whole story of what's going on here. We covered it about a year ago when we were in Acts 18. But in verse 17, we read that they seized Sosthenes. This is while Paul was in Corinth. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so Sosthenes was a Jewish leader in the city of Corinth. Crispus was formerly the ruler of the Corinthian synagogue, and he had been converted to Christ along with his household. He became a part of the Christian church there. And so Sosthenes basically took his place as the ruler of the Jewish synagogue. And here we have in 1 Corinthians, apparently this Jewish leader also has become a Christian. And so the Corinthians would have known this man, at least those in the church with a Jewish background. They would have been familiar with Sosthenes. And so Paul mentions that Sosthenes, who is now their brother in the Lord, is with him as he's writing. Very possible that he was working sort of as a uh, secretary, sort of dictating to Sosthenes, and Sosthenes was the one writing. Uh, Paul did that often in his letters. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. A little background on the city of Corinth. Uh, here's Corinth on the map. It is right there, right there uh, at the southern tip of Greece. Here's a bit of a zoomed-in map so you can see it better. Corinth is at the southern end of what is today the country of Greece. And you can see on the map there that where Corinth is located is a very small strip of land separating the Adriatic Sea from the Aegean Sea. Now, if you remember from uh, geography, we're going way back here, this is called an isthmus, which is a very difficult word to pronounce. I don't know why we use that word, uh, but that's what this is called, an isthmus, a little strip of land separating two large bodies of water. Now, because Corinth was located on this isthmus, 
trade traveled right through the city of Corinth. It was far easier and safer to travel the five miles across this little stretch of land than it was to go 200 miles by sea uh, around the coast of Greece. And so many people who were sailing through would travel on land across the Isthmus of Corinth, uh, particularly the trade routes would go right through the city. The Corinthians had taken advantage of this opportunity. They had paved a road across from one end to the other, and they controlled ports on either side. So they were able to charge fees uh, for anyone who was crossing over. Here's a picture of what that road looks like today. Crossing was done either by unloading the ships and carrying the cargo all the way across and then loading it back onto another ship, or if it was a smaller ship, it would sometimes be placed on rollers and literally pushed all the way across to the other side. Corinth was also famous for the place uh, as the place where the Isthmian Games were held, uh, which were second only to the Olympian Games in terms of athletic competitions at the time. People from all over would travel to Corinth for that event every other year. We'll see some references to that, by the way, in Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians about these athletic competitions. As a result of these games and the trade routes that went through the city, Corinth became a very prosperous and diverse city. Greeks, Jews, immigrants, veterans of the Roman army, they were all living together in this one city. It was one of the wealthiest and most populated cities of the ancient world. There's one more thing you need to know about Corinth, and that's its reputation for idolatry and prostitution. Uh, this is the famous temple to Aphrodite. Here's the, the ruins of it that you can see even today in the city of Corinth. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexual pleasure and beauty. And at this temple, 1,000 prostitutes were employed. Uh, they would basically come down from the mountain every night to seduce the tradesmen who were traveling through, and the money that they made was how the temple operations was funded. There were also many other temples and shrines to false gods throughout the city of Corinth. Here's the uh, temple. Uh, this is a reconstruction of what the temple to Aphrodite likely looked like. Uh, here's the, the location of that temple was right at the summit of this mountain. And then you see right here at the bottom of the mountain is another shrine to the god Apollo. And so Corinth was a very idolatrous city. There have been shrines and temples found throughout Corinth to all sorts of different gods. It was a polytheistic culture. As for the sexual immorality of the, country, of the city, it had such a bad reputation that Aristophanes, who was an ancient uh, Greek playwright, he coined the verb to Corinthianize, which literally means to fornicate. That was the reputation that the city of Corinth had. Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world. The closest parallel in America would be Las Vegas. It kind of had that reputation of, yeah, everybody knows uh, bad things happen in this city. And into this culture, Paul arrived to start a church. Paul arrives at Corinth during his second missionary journey. And we're going to go through here just a little bit of the timeline of events uh, so that you can understand what led up to this book that we're about to study. First, Paul arrives there in Acts 18 during his second missionary journey. It was here in Corinth that he met a Jewish man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And because they were skilled in the same trade as Paul, they were tent makers, he stayed with them and worked with them to provide his living during this time. And so you could say Paul was bivocational at this time. He's trying to plant a church, and he's also providing his own living uh, by working with them. Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue, as he always did. He went to the Jewish people first in Corinth, and he was rejected, other than the ruler. Again, Crispus was converted to Christ, uh, but the rest of the Jews there basically threw him out of the synagogue and did not want to hear what he had to say. And so Paul then went to the Gentiles, and he preached the gospel to them. And we read in Acts 18 that many of them believed and were baptized. Paul then spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth. He's establishing this new church. He's teaching the word of God to them. And so he's there for a year and a half, which was quite a long time for Paul. Uh, typically, he didn't stay in one place very long. He would plant a church, leave somebody there to run it, and kind of move on to the next place. But in Corinth, he stayed for a while, a year and a half, teaching the word of God, helping to disciple the new converts and establish this church. After Paul left Corinth, Apollos came to the city and he helped this new church continue to grow 
and be established. We read about that in actually several passages of the New Testament, uh, that after Paul left, Apollos comes along. Sometime after Paul left Corinth, he wrote a letter to them that we do not have. Now, this is going to be a little bit confusing, but hang with me. Uh, Technically, what we call 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. Some people argue it might even be 4 Corinthians. Uh, In other words, there is at least one and maybe two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that we do not have. Okay, so for sake of clarity, I'm going to keep referring to this book that we're looking at as 1 Corinthians, but it's important that you understand this is actually the second letter that he had written to them. Paul had written to them previously. He mentions it in chapter 5 of this letter that he had written another letter to them in the past. So Paul left Corinth. Apollos arrives there. Somewhere during that time, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church, and we don't really know exactly what was in that letter. He mentions a couple of things, uh, but for the most part, We just have no idea. Then the Corinthians wrote a letter back to Paul. He mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In this letter, they asked Paul various questions. Things like they had questions about marriage and celibacy. They had questions about food offered to idols. They had questions about spiritual gifts and other issues. So 1 Corinthians, the the book that we're going to be studying uh, starting today, combines responses from Paul to these issues. We're going to see him at times saying things like, now about that thing you wrote to me, and then he'll go on and kind of give his answer. There are are these times where, again, we're going to be required to try and figure out the other side of the conversation, uh, do a little bit of guesswork to try and, and figure out what Paul is responding to. Now, the next thing that you need to understand is that Paul had also received some alarming reports about the church in Corinth. He mentions this a couple of times uh, in his letter here. We know that at least one of these reports came from Chloe's household. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, He mentions it right there in the opening verses. But these reports had reached Paul about what was going on back in Corinth, uh, specifically at the church in Corinth, and it was really bad. Uh, Not like a a minor issue here and there, no, This church had become royally screwed up. Some people were getting drunk during communion at the church. Uh, There was a guy in the church who was sexually involved with his own stepmother. Uh, Several of the men of the church had to be reminded by Paul not to go to the temple prostitutes. And on top of all of that, you had members of the church who were fighting with each other. There was division in the church. They were even suing each other in court. So this church had major problems, and Paul's hearing these reports and becoming very concerned about the condition of the church in Corinth. And so all of this background leads up to where we are now. Paul writes the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. So to recap, 1 Corinthians is being written and sent to the church in Corinth because Paul has received some very alarming reports about things taking place there, and because he needs to respond to some questions that they had raised, some things they had written to him about. And so the first half of 1 Corinthians deals with the reports that he's heard. He's correcting uh, issues. He's really kind of reaming them out about some of the stuff that they're doing. Uh, And then the second half of the book, he works through the questions they had asked, the things that they were confused about. And all throughout this letter, Paul is teaching these Corinthians about how the gospel should be applied to all of life. Uh, What does it look like to live in the world as a follower of Jesus? How should our belief in Christ, our devotion to him as Lord, change the way that we live day to day? A separation from the world is a major theme throughout this letter, that we should all be living in visibly different ways than the world around us. It's a letter about the purity of the church, how we are to shine as lights in the midst of a perverse and dark world that is lost in sin. This is why he mentions in this letter things like kicking out uh, members who are openly living in sinful lifestyles. This is why he says, don't get drunk and don't speak in tongues chaotically during your church services. All of this is a blot on the testimony that you are to have to the watching world. Paul is very concerned that this church would represent Jesus well to the city of Corinth, not just in their theology and in their teachings, although there's some of that, but also in their conduct and in the way that they get along with one another. 
And so 1 Corinthians is all about seeing every part of life through the lens of our faith in the gospel and our commitment to follow Christ as Lord. So that's a little bit about Corinth, about the history of the church that leads up to this letter. Back to our text, verse 2. After uh, telling them who it is that's writing, Paul says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Two key words we want to focus on here this morning in that verse is saints and sanctified. Uh, Related words, they sound similar in English, they sound even more similar in Greek because they have the same root. When we hear saints, unfortunately, many of us think of uh, the Catholic Church, where being a saint means, first of all, you're dead, uh, and secondly, that some people think they can perform miracles in your name and that sort of thing. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. Paul regularly uses this term for everyday Christians. Uh, All Christians are called saints in Scripture. And the word literally means holy ones. Uh, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy. Uh, Paul is reminding this messed up church of their calling in Christ. That God had saved them in order that they would be different. God saved them to make them his holy people. uh, Not so they could just go on living like the culture around them. God had set them apart. And he uses the word sanctified here. Uh, which is the idea of being set apart or consecrated. In the Old Testament, uh, the instruments and things in the temple were considered uh, sanctified. They were set apart specifically for that use. Uh, You were not to use them for any sort of commonplace uh, uh, activity. And so in the same way, these people in the church of Corinth had been set apart for God. He had consecrated them to be his holy people in Corinth. Notice also in these verses how Paul emphasizes that Christ is their Lord. The word Lord comes up six times uh, in these opening nine verses. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus, he is our Lord. And here's the point. Paul is saying to them, if you claim to be a Christian, recognize that you have pledged devotion and allegiance to Christ. He is your Lord, so start acting like it. Paul wants them to begin to see themselves as belonging to Christ. They are his people, his holy people. As Jesus said to Paul in Acts 26, he had sent Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what it means when you become a Christian. You are transferred from darkness to light. You are no longer a citizen of the world, but you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. You've received a place among those who are set apart to be holy for Christ. Back to verse 2. Notice one word in particular here, and if you like underlining things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline the word called in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, what does that mean? Called to be saints. Well, we already saw that word in verse 1, where Paul said he was called to be an apostle, and its meaning is rather obvious there. Paul didn't decide to be an apostle. God chose him to be an apostle, and the word has the exact same meaning here in verse 2. Though this time, Paul is not talking about himself being called to be an apostle, but rather, these Christians had been called to be saints. Now, you might think that uh, to be called to be saints simply refers to the preaching of the gospel, that when we preach the gospel to the lost, uh, we're sort of sending out the call. And so everyone is called in that sense to be a saint. That's not what Paul means. And we know that that's not what Paul means, because as you continue reading later in this chapter, you'll see him clarify. We're just going to read through these quickly. We'll study them more in depth uh, at a later time. But same chapter of 1 Corinthians, look down at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So clearly, Paul is talking here about salvation from sins as he's preaching the gospel and people are coming to faith in Christ. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, 
both Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the preaching of the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. They want a sign. Uh, It is a folly to the Gentiles. They want wisdom. But to those who are called from both of those groups, it is the power of God to save them. So when we talk about the called ones, we're not talking about simply the call of the gospel going out. No, this is a specific group of people made up of some Jews and some Gentiles who respond to the gospel with faith because they have been called. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Now notice how he's going to use the word chosen throughout the next several verses synonymously with this call. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. He's saying there that you are normal, common day people. God didn't choose you because of anything in you. And yet he called you to salvation. He chose you. Verse 30, in case you didn't get the point, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says to them that they were called to be saints, and he means God called them. It was a summoning call from God. Just like it was the call of God that made Paul an apostle, because God chose him to be one, so God has chosen these Christians to whom Paul is writing. God called them to be saints. Back in Acts 18, when Paul first came to the city of Corinth and he was facing that immediate rejection from the Jews for his preaching, God shows up to him in a vision in the night and encourages him. He says in verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so with that confidence from God, Paul went on and preached the gospel to the city of Corinth, knowing that God was going to call many of these people in Corinth to be saints. In other words, when we come to Christ for salvation, it is not of our own doing. It's not like God just offers salvation and then we one day decide to receive it. No, God calls us. He summons us to himself. As Jesus said in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, no one can come to him except the Father draw him. The preaching of the cross is powerful to those who are saved, to those whom he has called. It is because of this calling, his calling of us, that we are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back to verse 2 of our text. Paul says to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, this is true for all Christians, as he says here. All of us have been called to be saints. We've all been set apart for God. All who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, meaning those who identify themselves as belonging to Christ. We are his people. He is our Lord. And so Paul begins by addressing them as saints, holy ones, called by God to be his people, set apart in Christ. You notice also in these verses that Paul is connecting the church of Corinth to the broader family of God. He says the church of God that is in Corinth, there's church of gods uh, all over the world, and even at this time all over uh, Turkey and Greece and Israel, that whole area, there were churches of God that Paul wanted them to see themselves in connection with, uh, in partnership with. Yes, we are saints, but we are saints together with all who in every place call the name of the Lord Jesus. He is their Lord and he is ours. We ought never to see our church as in competition with other churches. 
Now, all true gatherings of Christians, we are all united by one faith. We have one Lord, we have one mission, and so we should see one another as in partnership. Uh, It should not be some sort of a competitive thing where we look down on other churches, where we sort of bash other churches. By the way, uh, even churches that do things differently and may have problems. Again, we're reading the letter to the Corinthians. They had serious problems. And yet, Paul considers them part of the family of God, a true church of Christ, in partnership with Jesus. Next, Paul greets them with his traditional greeting found in verse 3. This is uh, very common in all of Paul's letters, pretty much. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you was a common greeting in the Greek language. And for the Jews, the Hebrew greeting was shalom, which means peace. And so Paul sort of combines these two together. Grace to you and peace, which I think was part of Paul's way of uniting the Jew and Gentile church of God together. Grace and peace to you. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells these Corinthians he thanks God for them often. And the next three verses explain what it is that Paul is giving thanks for. Here is how God's grace had been given to this church. Verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech, and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells them they were a blessed church. They had been enriched in the word and in knowledge. This was a well-taught church. Uh, Paul himself had spent a year and a half there, and then Apollos came, a man who's said to be mighty in the scriptures, and he spent time teaching them and instructing them further. As Paul says later in this letter, he planted, Apollos watered. And so they had been enriched by solid teaching. But more than that, God was powerfully at work among this church. The message of Christ was being confirmed among them through spiritual gifts. Uh, More is going to be said about this later in the letter. But during the first century of the church, God regularly displayed supernatural signs to confirm the message of Jesus. Things like prophecy and healing, speaking in in tongues and and foreign languages, uh, working miracles of various kinds. All of these sorts of supernatural gifts were happening all over the church of Corinth. And it was a confirmation of the truth of the gospel. It was a sign to the unbelievers to confirm the testimony of Christ that they were giving. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So what's being said there at the end of verse 3, it was attested to us by those who heard, meaning that first generation of people who saw Jesus with their own eyes, who heard his teaching with their own ears, They attested to what they had seen and heard. Verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. And so this was happening all over the church of Corinth. God was working through them powerfully to confirm their message to this lost city. Back to verse 7, you notice at the end of the verse it says they were waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. These Corinthians understood that Jesus would return to reign over the world, and they were looking forward to that day as we all should. But then notice verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now that's a remarkable statement, and it really should be a great comfort to all who are in Christ. Paul assures them that they will stand before Christ guiltless on judgment day. We know according to Matthew 25 and other passages that when Jesus returns, we will all stand before his throne to be judged. Those who rejected Christ in this life will be punished. Those who obeyed him and honored him will be rewarded and allowed into his eternal kingdom. And Paul says to these Christians in Corinth, you will stand guiltless on that day. There will be no condemnation. Now, let's put this all together with the rest of what scripture says on this subject, including what Paul is going to write later in this very letter. For example, Paul says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Notice, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. So Paul says the only way to stand guiltless before the Lord on judgment day is to hold fast to the gospel I preached to you. You are being saved by this gospel if you hold fast to the word I preached. If we let go of the gospel, if we decide we no longer believe in Christ, then Paul says your belief was in vain and you are not saved. As Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So continuing in our faith is the sign that we have truly come to share in Christ if we hold firm to the end. You aren't going to stand on judgment day before God guiltless because you believed in the gospel at one point in your life and then changed your mind and abandoned your commitment to Christ. It is enduring faith that saves us from God's judgment. Not only is our faith, but also our conduct confirming whether or not we are in Christ. There are many verses we could look at on this, uh, but here's just two. First John chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we are in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So the only way we as sinners can stand guiltless before Christ on Judgment Day, the only way our sins will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, according to these verses, is if we are walking in the light. If we think we're in the light, in fellowship with Christ, while walking in sin, John says we are mistaken. Now, don't get the wrong idea. No Christian is perfect in this life. We're not talking here about sinless perfection, never sinning, always doing what is right. We know that as long as we are in this body, we will be wrestling with sinful tendencies. But we ought to see a pattern of life that is improving over time. We ought to see spiritual growth. Here's one of the best passages on this concept, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's that idea again of God calling us to this salvation. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Then notice verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are never perfected in you in this life, but they should be in you. These qualities should be yours, and they should be increasing over time. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how do we know if we've been called to be saints? Peter says your calling and election is confirmed by these qualities increasing in your life. This is the evidence of God's Spirit at work in us, making us more and more visibly Christians, holy people. This is the design of God that all throughout the rest of our lives, we would be growing in holiness, growing in love, growing in knowledge of God and his ways. Those who will stand before God guiltless on the day of judgment are those who believe the gospel and they keep believing to the end, and those who continue in their commitment to follow Christ and grow. Back to our text, look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful, meaning he can be trusted He can be believed in. God is reliable. Uh, Back in 2008, you may remember the housing crisis that took place in our country, all the chaos uh, that followed. Banks were failing, the stock market crashing, everybody was talking about a recession. There was a lot of panic uh, in those days. And at the heart of all of it was unfaithfulness. People bought houses that they couldn't afford. 
And so they stopped making payments on their mortgages. They started falling behind. And enough people did this that it caused a whole collapse of the financial system and a national crisis. Banks were basically not doing a good job of screening the people they were giving loans to. They were giving mortgages out to anybody who wanted one, uh, even people with terrible credit scores, terrible history of paying their bills. Uh, you want a mortgage? Sure, here it is. And they just kind of gave it out to everybody. And many of those people did not keep their commitments. They were unfaithful. When we say that God is faithful, we mean he can be trusted. He keeps his commitments. He keeps his promises. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now, this is something said often in Scripture, that God's promises will be kept. If God makes a commitment to you, he will keep it. He can be relied on. He is faithful. And that's a great truth, but it's not what Paul is saying. Look at our text again, 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 8. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is not just saying that God will be faithful to keep his commitments to you. He's saying that God's faithfulness will keep your commitment to him. He will sustain you to the end. He will make you to stand guiltless before him on judgment day. God is faithful by whom you were called. There's that word again if you want to underline it there in verse 9. It's a reference back to verse 2. Remember, Paul said, God is the one who called us to be his holy people. He called us to be saints. Therefore, that same God who called us will keep us. Since it was God who brought us to salvation, he will be the one to preserve us faithful to the end. Throughout these verses, Paul has been stressing to these Corinthians how God is at work in their life. God called you. God sanctified you. He set you apart. God has given you grace. God has enriched you with spiritual gifts. And God will be faithful to sustain you to the end. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will keep you blameless. He will sanctify you completely. Now there are some who claim to be Christians and later forsake that claim. Of course, all of us are familiar with that. Uh, many of us probably know people like that. They call it nowadays, the popular term is deconstructing your faith, uh, where you were a Christian at one time, and now you decided that you don't believe any of that. Well, Paul isn't talking about that here. He speaks elsewhere of those who make a superficial profession of faith that isn't genuine. Paul here is talking to those who have been sanctified, who have been called, in whom God has worked to confirm the truth of the gospel through their spiritual gifts and their growth in holiness. To them is this promise of preservation, not simply to those who claim to be Christians because they prayed a prayer once or uh, decided to just start calling themselves a Christian. Paul knew these people. He had spent a year and a half with them. He had seen God's work in their lives. He saw evidences of God's grace in Christ to them. The gospel had taken root in their hearts and had been confirmed through their spiritual gifts. And so Paul is convinced that their calling would prove firm and immovable. In other words, God wasn't done with them. All whom God calls, he keeps. Romans 8 verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brother, brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Called, justified, glorified. From beginning to end, our salvation is secure because of him who saves us, not because of ourselves. We don't save ourselves and we don't keep ourselves saved. It is God who calls, it is God who justifies, and it is God who glorifies. Jude verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be majesty, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority 
before all time, now and forever. God is the only one able to keep us from stumbling. He is the only one able to present you blameless before him on judgment day. The faithfulness of these Corinthians to God would be the result of God's faithfulness in keeping them. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This truth should be a great comfort to all of us. As Christians, we are safe in God's hands. If God has given you life, if you are following him, he promises to keep you. And Paul wants these Corinthians to know God wasn't done with them. As he writes in Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Back to our text, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice how often in these verses Jesus is mentioned. How Paul relates all of life to Christ. Paul starts off by identifying himself in relation to Christ. I am Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he speaks to the church at Corinth and their relationship to Christ. You are the church of God, sanctified in Christ. You are those who call on the name of Christ. He is your Lord. Then he greets them with a blessing, grace to you and peace from God and Christ. He mentions how thankful he is for them because of the grace that was given them in Christ. He says their testimony, uh, the testimony of Christ, the message of the gospel was confirmed in them through their giftedness. And then he says they're waiting for Christ's return. Christ will sustain them until he returns. And because God has called them into fellowship or partnership with Christ, all of their lives, all of their identity is... uh, is uh, wrapped up in Jesus. This is what Paul is communicating to them, that you should view yourself as a Christian through and through. In all areas of your life, you are his. Romans 14, verse 8, Paul says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We have been called into fellowship with Christ. We are set apart for Christ. We are those who call on his name. He is our Lord. We are his people. Paul wants these Corinthians to internalize this identity they have, to begin to think of themselves as belonging to Christ, as his chosen people set apart for his purposes in the world. And thus, as Christians, they are to live as Christians in Corinth. When people look at them, they should see Jesus. It's amazing to me that God was at work even in this messed up church in Corinth. They had all sorts of problems. Again, Paul's going to address those throughout the letter. We'll see one of them actually next week. Uh, Right away, he dives into the division of the early church uh, in Corinth. But still, with all of their issues, with all of their problems, with all of their, their sin, they were still the church of Jesus Christ. They were still a part of the family of God. They were still a light of the gospel showing the truth of the message of Christ to Corinth. No church is perfect, Yet even here, this church was in fellowship with Christ. I've always been fascinated by the letters to the churches in the New Testament, particularly if you read in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, where Jesus himself writes letters to the various uh, churches there. And some of the churches were, again, really messed up. Uh, False teaching, fighting amongst each other. And yet never does Jesus or any of his apostles give up on the church. They never say to the members, You know, this gathering that you're at is so messed up, you probably should just leave. No, our fellowship together matters. And despite our shortcomings, we are called together as one body to represent Christ in our communities, no matter how imperfectly we may be doing that. Paul's commitment to the church is clear throughout the New Testament, even to churches like Corinth, where there were serious problems. The 16th century theologian John Calvin writes, Concerning this passage, it may perhaps appear strange that he should give the name of a church of God to a multitude of persons that were infested with so many distempers that Satan might be said to reign among them rather than God. Later, commenting on that passage, Calvin concludes, This is a passage that ought to be carefully observed, 
that we may not require that the church, while in this world, should be free from every wrinkle and stain, or forthwith pronounce unworthy of such a title every society in which everything is not as we would wish it. For as it is a dangerous temptation to think that there is no church at all where perfect purity is not to be seen. For the man that is presupposed with this notion must necessarily in the end withdraw from all others and look upon himself as the only saint in the world or set up a a peculiar sect in company with a few hypocrites. In other words, Calvin is saying there, there is no perfect church and yet there is true churches. And even churches with problems, even churches with issues are still called into the fellowship of Christ to be his holy people, his vessels for spreading the gospel to our communities. And so this is how Paul begins this letter, by reminding these Christians in Corinth that God has called them to be his holy representatives. He's worked through you in the past, he's called you to salvation, and he will continue to work on you to the end because he is faithful to keep his covenant with you. And so for us today, studying this introduction to the letter of Corinth, we can be encouraged by these same truths. Give thanks to God for his grace to you. Thank him for calling you to salvation. Thank him for his work in your life in the past. And thank him for the work that he will continue to do in the future. Be comforted that God is not done working on you. Even with your flaws, even with your problems, God hasn't given up on you. He knew the ways that you would let him down when he called you. And so be comforted. Trust that he who began this good work in you will continue it and will present you one day guiltless before him. And and then, uh, kind of a final application, is actually let him work on you. We'll get to that more in the letter. Let the Lord have his way in your life so you become more and more the person that he has called you to be. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together.